Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Coifin. Coifin is one of the fastest growing platforms for financial data and analytics to research stocks and understand market trends. I discovered them thanks to their very passionate users, many of which are my friends. Coifin displays financial information simply and elegantly. Imagine a Bloomberg light with tons of high-quality fundamental data, a powerful graph engine that can show it all clearly, and a user interface that doesn't look like it was built in the 1990s. If you're an individual investor, research analyst, portfolio manager, or financial advisor, do yourself a favor and check them out. You won't regret it. Sign up for free at coifin.com. That's K-O-Y-F-I-N.com. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my episode with Thomas Brazil. Thomas is one of the most interesting special situations thinkers that I've come across in a long time. He gets into some really esoteric and hairy stuff. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope that you will as well. As always, none of this is investment advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions and do your own due diligence. So with that out of the way, Thomas, how you doing, man? I'm okay. I want to know who the sponsor is. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's, this is a great segue. For those that don't know what's going on, I was saying that I, I know I used to start the show by doing the full intro, but um, now that Koifin is sponsoring the show, oh, I need to... Don't owe Koifin. Koifin's dope. No, it's like a respectable sponsor. I thought it was going to be like respectable. Chili's or something. I was, no. was going to... I was going to enjoy making fun of the, the sponsor. This is that's like a legit sponsor. I'm not hoeing myself out, man. I'm trying to give people, uh, you know, legit see, that's sponsors. Your problem, Bill. <laughs> well, we'll see. I'm, I'm not above it. It just costs a lot more than, you know. What about what's merch? What's going on on the, the Bill merch side? I don't know, man. I'll tell you what. I've been dealing with this firm and I like them. I'm not trying to be rude to them. They're very nice people and my friend runs them. But. I think they're frustrated with me because of my brand direction, and I think I'm getting a little <laughs> frustrated. Lack of? Yeah, and I, well, no, I think <laughs> I'm. I think I got an idea here. No, I like your brand. I like your. I'm joking with you, man. I, I no, you're fine to give me shit. I don't mind that at all. But I'm getting a little frustrated with them on their timing. So I think that we need to have a group reset and say, so when's this going to get done, and what are we doing here? Because it's just kind of yeah. been pencils down, much like the house I'm building. It's just like completely pencils down. Are you building a house? Yeah. Good for you. Well. I'm trying to support your stocks. Like you're like, oh, we got to buy the appliance from here. Got to buy the wood from here. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, no, that's not, that's not quite the goal. You know, the problem is, and I've been researching this a lot, man. I, I don't think this is a unique problem. And it's why I am comfortable having directional ties to lumber, the housing market is undersupplied, okay. right? In a fairly big yeah. way. Lumber tends to be correlated, like the marginal buyer seems to be repair and replacement and the right. existing housing stock sucks. Like there is so much. So when we were looking to buy down here, there's just so many homes that if you buy like we're we're in Florida, right? So the building codes yeah. have changed and a lot of these houses are older. So if you take the windows out, then like your window the new windows are way too 
efficient for the amount of air conditioning that comes in. The old AC systems oh. are like too big. So you end up with these houses that just constantly have condensation and then you end up like smelling oh. like must. I don't want to live in a fucking must e- Elon box. Musk. I'm not <laughs> Elon Musk indeed. Elon Musk. So I and then, you know, there just weren't that many new homes and there's almost none that are available. So yeah. it was Also, your wife's going to want to rip out anything you buy anyway. Might as well might as well <laughs> the same yeah, I think so. And dude, like uh, the other thing is we bought the land in September and yeah. we've already received an unsolicited bid that makes me think that the probability of once we build this new home, like the probability of actually losing money is super low. Now, you know, yeah. the market can crash and then you're fucked and I get all that risk, but like that's not real. I think building was a much smarter decision than buying is sort of the short short yeah. answer what you need to do mark to market start a fund i'm great at land speculation let's mm. get going this is a what do they call it brownfield space uh, opportunity here i like greenfield it. space i don't that, know whatever <laughs> yeah whatever field we're, we're just There's buying fields. that's the whole point There's we're fields buying everywhere. fields and then we're, we're going to turn fields. it into something this is genius right i home builders always scare me i don't know i mean of course i, I mean I, I appreciate what you're saying is a personal story i'm, I'm in general I got pitched a home builder recently and I was just sort of like, yikes. Like, I just, I just worry about capital. I mean, I'm not, this is like way off of uh, anything I'm knowledgeable about, but I good. Just that's about what we're doing here. We're just talking. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. So good. you pitched well, a home builder for- and your brain goes, what? I just think like, this is scary, you know, like, yeah, of course they're making and they're, gr- you know, they're growing like crazy and the returns are, ridiculous but what do they know about the markets they've never been in like these guys are like oh we're great in washington we're gonna do the same thing everywhere yeah it's like i don't think that's how it works <laughs> no no i don't think that's how it works either <laughs> they're like you know an idea that i was like looking into that i, I don't even want to say i like it's an idea that i think warrants more attention is builders first source was that the offshoot that wasn't no that's distribution now i was thinking yeah. that's not the uh offshoot of home depot no that wasn't it no that was hd supply if I recall, I remember correctly. that that was like the best worst spin ever. We're like the CEO. I always love a spin co where the CEO of the parent goes to the spin co. I'm always yeah. like, oh yeah, there's your sign. That's the one to buy. Well, and then I they ended I, up I, getting almost, collapsed back into Home Depot, right? Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, okay, see, I haven't even followed it in so long. <laughs> yeah, there you genius. go. You need corporate to. genius at work. Yeah, corporate genius at work. <laughs> oh, the, let's spin this out. Yeah, let's somebody made good fees good. on that. Oh my God. The merry-go-round of like corporate transactions is always so funny. It brings up a topic I've been thinking a lot about, Bill, which is like, you know, I think this is why I'm currently in a funk, which is... You don't seem like you're in a funk, man. You're super happy dude. Let's get you out of your funk for the next hour and a half or two hours. Let's get you out of your funk. How's that sound? Well, you know, it's so funny you called me. Obviously, I did. I went to the pool because, you know, when your kid looks at you and they're like, oh, do you want to come with us? And and I'm like, oh, geez, that's too cute. I, I you know, yeah, yes, of course, yeah, of course, I want to come. So I ended up going to the pool. Well, but, I'm glad I got you uh, back inside and funked out. So let's talk about this. Well, and better with better Wi-Fi. Yeah, but I mean, it's like sometimes if you're not doing anything, you just feel like I'm not accomplishing anything. You know, there's just like this culture of accomplishment, I guess. Hmm. And I suppose it could be very bad for you as an investor because you sort of. Sometimes you just need to be doing nothing. I mean, sure, you're still maybe looking at things, but you're not. There's no actual action. 
And I think this whole idea, like even, you know, there's an investment firm called Arena Partners. Like the whole idea is to be in the arena and like, you know, action, action, action. I mean, this kind of activity can probably be pretty detrimental to you. But at the same time, mentally, it's really hard to decouple yourself from non-activity. You know? Yes, I do know. I know bigly. And I, I am in the period of a drawdown that is bigger than what, I, well, not bigger, almost as big as, as what I experienced in March of 2020. So you want to make you feel better? No, I'm joking. No, I don't. No, but like, you know, the thing is, I I meant like my drawdown, I'm sure will be bigger than yours, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, you, yeah, for sure. You deal with more volatility than I do. But like I've said on the podcast that I'm long op fi, you know, mm-hmm. we're like one quarter out of an IP, not an IPO, but a SPAC transaction. Right. I, they missed, but like they didn't catapult miss. And so if you asked me to go back to the beginning of the pandemic and you said to me, how's the consumer going to come out of this? I wouldn't say so flush that all the retail comps are going to be insane. And I wouldn't say like with the best balance sheet ever. So the idea that like they somewhat misforecast is totally okay with me. And I didn't buy it on some short term trade nonsense anyway. Did I pay too much? Like, I mean, I think it's hard to argue that I didn't, given the fact that I'm down 40% on it or whatever. And I also think there's a huge rebuttable presumption when you're down that much, whether or not you're wrong. But it's like, I honestly don't think I'm wrong yet. So, you know, what do you do there? Because there's some opportunity cost to capital. Is that sunk cost fallacy or not sunk cost? But do I have endowment bias? Like all this shit. Right. Right, right. And I guess that what I've been thinking about is as I look at my decision making going into that, I was definitely in a heightened emotional state because the podcast was sort of growing and I thought that I had found something unique in Kyle. And I think that there was probably motivated reasoning going on. And on top of that, like I had recorded an episode with Tyrone V. Ross, which was like super meaningful to me. And he had mentioned that there's a need for these services. So like, there's a lot of things that are in me that want to root for the idea. So like, that's probably not the smartest time to make decisions. On the other hand, I don't know that I'm wrong yet. So I should probably do nothing, but there's a huge part of me that wants to do something. And you know, that's tough. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, where I think a lot of problems in my personal investment, what I've seen in people's investments come from is I almost think of it like an asset liability mismatch where your timing cuts short the actual bet. But the duration of the bet, mm-hmm. like on something like OpFi, the, the, objectively, the bet is a five, six year bet if I'm going to be right on valuation. So, you know, if you have a short term drawdown, don't cut it short with some timing mess up. Well, I mean, I think it's very important as an investor to be introspective because you really can get so much of it is psychological. Once you know how to do CFA level analysis on companies, right? And once you know how to like think about margins and competitive forces in industry, so much of it is psychological. And also like your scorecard has to be an internal scorecard, not an external scorecard. I mean, the tough part for people that are actually running funds like a hedge fund or something is People say they're long term and, you know, you can talk about that in your quarterly letter to your investor. And the person says, yeah, 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 I get that. I get that. How are we doing this month? And you're like, <laughs> oh, right. Right. That was my favorite. I was sitting with an investor once. I was running my fund 
And the guy said, I said, oh, you know, it's all kind of long term. You know, when I was really doing special situation stuff, so I was trying to manage the duration of the portfolio because I knew people, even though they said they were long term, weren't really. But this was really stark because the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know. Th- you know, three years. I get it. I get it. I get it. So and it was like literally the ninth, you know, it was like April 9th or something or August 9th. It was like the ninth day of the month. He's like, how, how are we doing this month, though? And I was like, why have I been talking for half an hour? But but I think you bring up a good point. I mean, Are you I don't, listening to anything I'm saying, sir? Well, yeah, Bill, you'll love this. Okay, I don't, did you ever run a fund? No, you no, just you worked no. at a, like a family office, and then you okay. No, man, I so, worked at a uh, bank. This is why I tell people not to listen to me with investment stuff. I don't. I'm not like formally trained on this yeah, shit. I'm I not think anything. You can learn a lot. Yeah, but I think a lot. I honestly meet a lot of people that learn learn bad stuff working at you know the proper shop to work at or whatever. So I'd be careful with that because they, they learn stuff that works where they work. You know, they learn, you know, we're like political animals. You know, you sort of learn your environment yeah, and how to that's fair. You know, thrive. I met a guy who was in his 50s and he was going to do, I guess, sort of micro cap and, you know, small cap equity special sit. And he was talking about how easy it was. This was like 15 years ago. And I was a kid and I just happened to be tagging along to this meeting to meet hedge fund managers. This nice guy at JP Morgan said, Oh, you know, come in on these meetings and just tag along and like listen to these hedge fund managers. And the guy, he spent like 30 years at Nakabelli, but somewhere, I can't remember the name of it, a, a pretty famous firm. Uh, the name will come to me later on. But anyway, a famous firm. And he says, Oh, you know, I just learned how to rotate the sectors right. And over time, like, you know, my performance was really good because he was managing like 3 billion bucks or something doing small caps with $3 billion. Ooh. Imagine that. Yeah. And yeah, he had like a thousand positions. And I was like, huh, that's really great. So how long have you been doing this? He's like, well, you know, I've only done a little bit on the side, but you know, now it's been like a year. So I'm like, this, nice. this guy basically has a year of experience. Nice. <laughs> Even though he's in his 50s. Because he spent if, 30 if years I recall correctly, they rotate. call that style drift. Well, my point was just like, you know, he thinks he has 30 years experience. I think he has one year experience. The yeah. last 30 years he's been doing... Oh, gosh, the name of the firm's not going to come to me. But, I mean, it's good to be introspective. I mean, I think, I don't know, man. You, you, you definitely can't hit them all. And also, for me, I think the, I guess the positions I've lost the most money on, it's probably back of the envelope analysis match with somebody I thought was smart was involved in it. And huh. consistency bias. I said I liked something. I felt the need to stick with it. And the, the things that have not worked have probably been things where, it really went against me hard and I stayed with it as huh. opposed to just being a bit aggressive. No, not, not, not don't port that onto your own. Situation no, I'm not. I'm not. I not, just think that's interesting. This is not, I mean, we, I think you were, I listened to your podcast with your friends, the, the ones with, I guess this name's Tosh. Or I don't actually know their names, but Tosh investing, I guess. No, what, what uh, the science of know? hitting Tiso. Tiso. I don't yeah. know where I got His name's Tosh Alex. From. Well, cause it's, it's T-S-O-H versus Tosh. <laughs> there was like Tosh TV. I don't know. Yeah. That was, uh, that's probably where I'm connecting it. Anyway, I was listening to you guys talk and I can't remember my point here, but it's, I think it's important to be introspective, but I don't know. Don't be too, in my book, just wake up every day and like decide whether you like something or not. But I've been sucked in by liking somebody in a position. I mean, I guess the biggest thing where I liked the people but lost the most money was probably West Dame, which is like a security that I don't own and I'm don't, not here to talk about securities. But anyway, so so for me, mine's a little different. You have your setup. For myself, like I'm transitioning into probably setting up my own family office later this year, next year. And I, I guess I sometimes feel like I have an imposter syndrome because I, I sort of got very lucky on one trade. And so that's why I'm 
I don't know that this is true. We're going to get into that, by the way. You know no, where I, I you know, you well, know where I may have screwed yeah, myself. Go ahead. I committed to not selling for a year, and a lot of people were like, "You don't have to do that." And I was like, "Well, I think I do." And I have not reduced exposure because you know, at some point, it's like you only have your word in life, right? So I'm not willing to trade that for some. It's a it's a tiny little position anyway, right? It's not like some big thing. Well, then you're fine. Yeah. But you know what? I always think it's important to have like investment heroes. One of my favorite. I mean, these aren't people that I know. I just know of them and read everything they've done and all their videos and things like that. There's a guy named Andrew Weiss out of Boston. And he does a lot of SPAC arbitrage. And he really, they do like pure arbitrage. The returns are fantastic, but their their fees are fantastic as well. And it's, it's, it's really perfect for like an endowment or... I mean, I actually think it's great, but I know people that don't like them because, you know, I pitched them to a family office friend of mine. He's like, dude, their fees are like four and 40. I was like, wow. Well, yeah. He's like, so when you do the numbers, like he's making you like net 10. I'm like, yeah, but it's net 10 every freaking year. It's made off returns, but it's actually legit. Wow. And it's a constrained strategy. You can only run like, I, I'm sure he has other strategies, but I think his main strategy only runs like $700 million. Basically, they're doing almost pure arbitrage through derivatives and all kind of international markets and stuff like that. And it's not all arbitrage. There's some value investing in there. He sort of started out doing closed in fund arbitrage. That was huh. sort of how he got into the business. Hmm. He's actually a pretty celebrated. It's a weird word to use for somebody, but he's sort of a well-known economist before he got into become an investor. Hmm. And I think I ran across him because he did like the Russian voucher programs or the, actually the Eastern Bloc voucher programs, which I have a an obsession with Bill. All right, let's uh, talk about it. This because people are going to be like, "Who's Thomas Brazil?" And I'm about to say one of the most interesting investment minds I've ever talked to. So let's talk about like what you're into. What am I into? Like I'm, what? Like I this love, security that you just mentioned, or this this idea that you just mentioned? That trade? Yeah. Well, you can't really get people to talk about it. I remember asking someone that was involved in it, and they were involved with like Thunderbird, and I, I shouldn't really mention his name because I don't know if he wants to be mentioned. Because he even said to me, I said, oh, I really want to do a podcast where we do the untold stories of the, the Eastern Bloc, you know, voucher programs and privatization programs. And he said, Tom, no one's going to come on your podcast. I was like, why? He's like, because it's kind of an unsavory thing. I mean, people were buying, you know, you were buying stuff off citizens. They didn't even know what they were doing. Like they were literally, mm-hmm. you know, giving people a bottle of vodka for their like 10,000 shares of Gazprom when, you know, we're basically buying Gazprom for like two cents or something. Yeah. So that was, that would be the pushback. But Anyway, the guys that did that trade made absolute fortunes. I mean, even the oligarchs that float around, you know, they, a lot of them people say, oh, these guys just basically stole the money. Okay, maybe there was some of that. But a lot of it was they were there early. They had a really opportunistic mindset and they knew how the system worked and how to get access. And I'm sure there was a ton of shady stuff that went on. But also, like a lot of them were just super opportunistic. And they, okay, yeah, some of them, the bank that they, used to buy the company was the, you know, a state bank. So like, how'd they get the loan? They didn't even put any money down. I'm sure there was a lot of stuff like that, but I'm fascinated with the greatest trades of all time in my mind, you know, like Russian voucher and privatization programs is a big one. All those privatization, you know, the Bill Browder book. Have you ever read the Bill Browder book, Bill? No, I haven't. Oh my God. Oh my God, Bill. I, well, dude, we this is why I like it. talking to you. You expand my mind. I, you know, I, I exist cool. in some fucking echo chamber of compounder bros, which who I love all of you. I'm sorry if I'm talking down to anybody, but I've gotten like this itch and addiction to special sits and obscurity, which is 
potentially very, very harmful to my financial health, but so far has not been. <laughs> I mean, a compound town has worked. Look, I'm into all that stuff too, I guess. I, I, I guess for me is I don't necessarily, sometimes when you run across people that are really good at it, I kind of like walk away and I'm just like, oh man, these guys, this guy is so much better than me yeah. at this. And there's nothing wrong with that. When you make money in special, when you do it in compounding, like in great companies, you don't have, I think, as much of an imposter like, oh, all I did was just put money on something that they want a lawsuit. But when you do these sort of esoteric special sits, like it can feel a little like, well, I didn't even do anything to like make this money. But hmm. but maybe, well, maybe you, you had don't to feel identify that way when you it. Compound yeah, yeah. There's a lot of toil. I mean, you you have people. Well, anyway, my let me finish Andrew Weiss, which is Andrew Weiss says I can teach you how to make money but I can't teach you how to be happy. And I remember when he said this and it, it was like an, an old Columbia University videos that they, they've taken them all down for some reason. I sent one to Mike Mitchell because they, they took down the ones of all the old ones, which I have no idea why, come on Columbia. Bill, you've got, you've got the sway. You got to get Columbia U to like put them out. I don't know what's going on at CBS. They're like, don't want anyone to see old videos of like great investors. Well, I think, if that is their strategy to somewhat hoard the information, that's a very poor strategy for the world that we're living in. Well, remember that whole, think about Compound Town. Did you see that whole like story or whoever the name of the firm was? No. They were going to like sue the kid that was putting out a substack about finding Compound. Oh, yeah. They said something. that they trademarked compounders or whatever. That shit was <laughs> nonsense. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that we was ridiculous. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. They're, those Cursing people, on brand. come on. They need to get their heads out of their ass. People have been saying compounder forever. Ridiculous. I, no, but I mean, okay, so so a few things. Okay, and you read the, um, what's the guy, Mike Mobison? Have you read the Mike Mobison thing around, what is it? You know, as you take in more information, your confidence goes up, but your predictive ability doesn't. Yes. I am always so worried about that. Yeah. Like, I'm always so worried that like, oh, I'm too friendly with the CEO. I like them too much. I like the pitch too much. I like the story. I had a stock with a similar fact pattern or my mind had a similar fact pattern that worked really well. You know what I mean? I'm always worried of overfitting. And that's why I almost, I don't like going too, too deep. That's my only pushback on compound town guys is sometimes they go so deep. I'm just like, are we even really talking about a stock anymore? <laughs> like, what are we fucking talking about? Well, you like, know, I mean, if you, if you, see the world through conviction is everything, then you need the incremental information to get your conviction. But I'm not sure that that gets you any closer to a precise answer, if that makes any sense, or maybe accurate. I, I, sometimes I confuse those. I mean, I think the guys that do compound overlaid with something going on, you know, so like I think of, you know, Buffett with Amex. I mean, Amex yeah. was a great company and then they had the salad oil issue. So if you can combine those two, I guess maybe Andrew Wyden does that. I mean, he's super concentrated. Yeah. He should just change the name of his firm to just- You talking Adam Wyden? Oh, Adam. What yeah, did I say? Andrew. Andrew Wyden, yeah. Yeah. I like him though. I like that that way of looking at the world. I think the way that I want to run the, the portfolio going forward is like there's an element of the stay wealthy portfolio and then there's an element of like the actually increase your lifestyle portfolio. And I think that the increase your lifestyle portfolio is where I want the special situations to be. And then the stay wealthy, I don't know, like here's a stock I don't own, but I wish I did is Texas Instruments. What's the probability mm. that over time you actually lose wealth owning Texas Instruments? I think the answer is like very, very low. You know, your absolute return may suck, but in a world where your absolute return sucks, I think everybody else's results suck harder. 
Yeah. I'm I mean, a maybe not, guy. but that's just kind like, of something I, that I, I toy around with. And I've thought this for no, two I years and never owned it, and I'd be way wealthier if I did. Well, what's the Taiwan Semiconductor? Why, why, why not a ta- oh, Taiwan Semiconductor? Market-leading position. Who knows what the valuation is supposed to be? Good tailwinds. You could yeah. have a sucky return. Yeah. But. No, I think, you, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, then, then you can get to, you know, LAM Research is one that makes sense. ASML has got just like this valuation on it that makes me, it, like my stomach actually hurts when I look at it. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes the market's telling you something that this you is, don't understand. This is rarefied air, Bill. This is like Mount Everest air. You got to like get your oxygen mask when you're buying some of these stocks. Don't you know that? <laughs> well, so you know where I think that value investors have a serious blind spot is like, I think a lot of people look at those valuations and rather than saying like, okay, why is this trading at this valuation? They, they dismiss it as nonsense. And I think that I've gotten somewhat smarter about the way the world works when I started to say, why does this make sense rather than this makes no sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just important to have a healthy respect for the price in front of you. Yeah. So So even looking at a, we were looking at a distressed, property in Miami and the pushback from the family office that I worked for, I was like, well, is this really such a great price? I was like, yeah, it's a few million cheaper, but this is in like a really hot area. It's in a area between just outside the design district. It's on the edge of the design district going into Midtown. I'm not familiar with Miami. Maybe you are. Well, how can you say it's in a good area and also say I'm not familiar with Miami? No, 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 no. (laughs) I mean, you know, all the, all the, uh, Brokers that I've spoken to. The Sim to. told me it was good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Twitter told me it was good. No, no, no. The brokers I spoke to, like, this is a really hot area. There was a they showed me there's a comp right next to it. Barcadia is doing some development down the street. Oh, okay. It's like, oh, Barcadia is good enough for Barcadia. It's good enough for me. That's right. It's supposed to be in a hot area. So prices have come down from I don't know. I'm just going to use a random number, 100 to down to like 80, and we're buying in 70. And the pushback to him is like, well, it's not that cheap. Well, yeah, but it's cheap off of cheap. Because yeah. it's sort of the market's cooled off a bit. And since you're buying land, it's raw land uh-huh. in a bankruptcy. It's like the most levered thing you can do. And, you know, so I was like, hey, your family office, if the market cools, it's still in a good area, it's growing, you can ride it out. The worst thing is a lower IRR. And their pushback is, you know, it's not that far off of current comp. And I'm like, ah, you're being too valuation driven. Yes. Like, I, I just... I just think people get a little too, that would be my pushback on value guys. And also they buy junk because I've gotten older. And I think those two things are correlated by the way, and potentially cause yeah, people buying junk. Yeah. Because it's cheap. They'd rather own cheap shit than like reasonably priced good stuff. It makes no sense. No, man. There's a famous hedge fund manager who I like as well. And he says, you go shopping for deals on Madison Avenue, not on, you know, Canal Street. It's like the stuff on Canal Street's fake. (laughs) Yeah, dude. If you just, from first principles, if you were like, I'm going to sell you a pile of junk to put your family's net worth in, but I'll sell it to you real cheap. like Real cheap. (laughs) Yeah, like in car terms, I'm going to give you a Pinto, but I'll give you a deal on it versus like a Ferrari at a fair price. Your wealth is safer in the Ferrari, 100%. You can maybe find some sucker to flip the Pinto to, but that's not a good investment. What's interesting is you do, you end up kind of getting into the greater fool thing, even if you're a value investor, you know? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree. I mean, time is not your friend, as your friends were saying. I totally agree with that. And, Take it one uh, step forward, really just, to, just to close this thought. You could maybe melt the Pinto and like 
you know, liquidate it, but then you got to pay taxes <laughs> on your liquidation. And then you got to go find another, like that's a, that's a tough game. Well, here's the other thing for you. Like even for myself, I started thinking more and more about taxes. Like it's a good thing, good problem to have, but think, geez, well, if you flip your portfolio four times a year and that's not super tax efficient, you better put up some crazy nums to like make up the tax Delta. Yeah. If you can hold things for five years. Yeah. So, but I don't know, man, I, I get, I get really like for me, I think relative valuation is dangerous and relative valuation in your own life is dangerous. And thinking about your mm. portfolio, like you just can't benchmark yourself to other people. It's bad for your psychological. It's bad for you psychologically. I think so. What do you think I about see, benchmarking like, you know, yourself to the S&P? Nah, bullshit. Forget it. Yeah? Forget it. No. And, and I used to tell people to, to index. I, and I guess for me, you know, talk about following your heroes or something. For me, like everything Buffett says is like, yeah, whatever Buffett says is right. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> and he's he said, well, he's such a, for myself growing up, he was such a mentor, unbeknownst to him, you know, just like by myself thinking about investing and really about life, you know, more more about life even than investing. I, f- I forgot I was going with this as well. I'm clearly uh No, you were, we were talking words, about indexing. But... We were talking about indexing and Buffett oh, yeah, said to index indexing. and now you you think it's BS. Yeah. I think it's kind of BS. I mean, it's like, how can you index in a market like this? I don't know. I dude, I 100% agree. Like, and I know it it is very, very difficult for me out of one side of my mouth to say like, well, you should look at ASML and wonder why it's valued this way. And also say, well, you know, indexing, I I couldn't do it in this kind of market. But I'll tell you what, if I lost to indexing in this market, I could never look myself in the mirror. Like you talk about massive regret. I'd rather underperform being me then lose to an index. I just, I couldn't do it. I, I would never be able to respect myself. And that's the biggest risk of all, in my opinion. Hmm. Oh, man. Gotta be careful. I, I think it's just psychologically dangerous to, because uh, I mean, think about it. You could have 20 years where you underperform. Yeah. But you've got, you're, let's say you're doing, you're very conservative on one side of your portfolio, the other part, you're total risk on with like yeah. 10% of your book. And it takes you 20 years to maybe outperform, quote unquote, if you were to either benchmark to the S&P or whatever you'd call it, where you benchmark to what your weightings are. I don't know. It's kind of irrelevant in my mind. You should just be trying to find good setups. I almost think like investing is, if I think about it in mathematical terms, to me, it's analogous to doing analysis, which is like you have to apply all the disciplines you know to like attack a problem and to learn as much as you can about the function in front of you and how it behaves. And maybe you can only understand how it behaves in certain areas. Yeah. And yeah, it's not solvable in any real sense. So you can't just like apply one rule book. That's why I feel like value investing, of course, is like a bedrock thing in North Star to be using. But but I think like the paint by numbers approach, I think that's what people say in the marketplace that I totally agree with. The paint by numbers approach to value investing is, I don't know, is it dead? I don't know. Did DFA kill it? Oh, you're talking Probably. about just like, this is statistically cheap, therefore I can just buy this? Yeah, I think so. I also think our replacement costs as, yeah, as valid today as they were 30 years ago. I don't know, probably, but not in everything. Yeah, I I, I tend to say no. Yeah, I'm, I'm with I think you it's on fine. that. To, I, there's much to more, me, to, you need much more qualitative insight today than you ever have, in my opinion. Now, maybe everybody has always said that, but I don't think it's wrong. Wouldn't, but wouldn't you say, like, my, my just observations over years of investing would be, it's not the stuff that's safe, 
that gets you in trouble. And it's not the stuff that's super risky that you know is risky to get you in trouble. It's kind of the shit in the middle where everybody's kind of like, ah, it's not too bad. And then they either make it too big or they don't see stuff because they think they sort of like, it's, it's the stuff in the middle where it's hard. To, if you already know something's risky, you're like, oh, I can only put a hundred thousand in this. Like it's yeah. very risky. You know, Said like, differently, okay. it's not what you know, it's what you know that ain't so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I No, I think that that's right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I guess that the reason that I'm so intrigued by special situations is, you know, you and I got long these, these lumber rights at the same time. And that was objectively a situation of capitulation and too many rights co- coming on the market at the yeah. like it, it wasn't it i would write people that i knew like the stock and they were like yeah this is crazy yeah and, and i understood the underlying thesis on curate sorry people for talking about it again but like i wrote to funds <laughs> or talked to funds that said i like this idea but it's too small like that okay. stuff that I can understand why I have an edge. That's not. Yeah. You don't need to be a genius there. You just need to be smart and small. Yeah. Smart and small. I like that. That's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. If you're smart and small or okay, smart, you know, not do anything too stupid and small. Like there's a lot of, of hay out there. Yeah. I, I think I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm all for like young, younger guys and girls, like going out there, finding investments. What I think some of that is interesting is he's, People will get a little full of themselves because they have like a rip roaring three years or five years or something. And I'm like, dude, you're managing like three million bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, of course you could, you can drive around in special sits and that's cool. That's totally cool. Just have some healthy respect for the fact that most guys that are managing a hundred million or 500 million or a billion dollars that are very, you know, just as smart, have all the expert network crap and like, you know, have meetings with management. They can't move in and out of stock like you. They have to accumulate a stock over the course of a month or two. Yeah. You went in and out in a month. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you can get in and out of a day, right? Like, or, yeah, you know, in three or four days. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, but, I think that's right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot up there. That's, that's why, why I, like, I would know, never talk guess, shit about other managers, like, especially bigger ones. I don't... No, but these guys are... Some of them are a lot better. I mean, to, my, in, in, to myself, humbly, I would say about myself, some of these guys are much better analyzers of businesses, but I can't. I can dance around them because I can go in and out. I can sort of dynamically increase my position on a day or you know or or trim it on a spike of some news and you can take advantage of that that's what i think i always think it's you want to take whatever unique advantages you can find and just pulverize them you know like use them until they don't work when you're smaller and you have less than 50 million 30 million 10 million they're the world's your oyster on special sets you said it once on a podcast you said the reason i got into small caps i think you said was because you just like thought about it from first principles that, hey, this is where a lot of it's harder for bigger firms to look at. I mean, that's still true. Yeah. So if you were advising somebody that had under $30 million, where would you tell them to like focus attention? I mean, look at every stock under $50 million. Yeah, yeah. Every stock under $100 million. You'll find tons of stuff. So much stuff that you shouldn't be buying all of it. I don't know. Because you can't <laughs> possibly you know follow all of it. Yeah. You know, after-tax returns matter. I also like for me, myself... I'm trying to think about after-tax numbers really matter. I knew someone that was an investor in yeah. like all the way through. And he was like, yeah, the returns were 30, 35%. He was turning over his book like a gazillion times a year. And there uh. was, you got UBIT, which I don't know, UBIT and I think there was some other tax as well that flowed through. But UBIT, I think was a big one. 
And he was like, so net, net, like we were making like mid-teens, which is great. But the after tax on this fund was just horrendous Yeah, compared to the net headline number. So I think, you know, it's a boring thing to talk about. But if you, you have some money, like taxes really do matter. Unfortunate yeah. consequence of life. Doesn't make it untrue. I mean, you can move to Puerto Rico, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Shout out to my boy, Francisco. I considered it, actually. Yeah, you have you? a friend in, in Puerto Rico? Francisco, who was on the uh, podcast with the Science of Hitting. He's in Puerto Rico. Oh, cool. No, I really have been thinking about Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, yeah. as they say. Puerto Rico. I get really diverse response. Some people say, oh, that's great, man. Oh, it's great. You're going to love it. And then other people are like, have you been to Puerto Rico? Yeah, and I mean, like, gosh, they got some real problems down there politically, but I don't know. I would be open to it. It's just too damn far. Like, I'm not trying to get on a plane every time I need to go somewhere. But that's, I, I don't disagree. I also don't know that I care enough about taxes to make a move like that. But, you know, a lot of people have. If you manage it properly. I mean, if you're having like a big liquidity event, I mean, you can, all, if you can stay a U.S. citizen and you can basically toggle. I mean, you want to be there and like legitimately jump through the hoops. But, you know, you don't have to become an expat. And yet, if you're having a big liquidity event in the next couple of years, like, why not? Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, if your company's going public and you own Coinbase. Yeah. Right, Bill? Yeah, that would <laughs> You're be... You're on Coinbase, right? I am not. That's not my thing. Although I am like very interested. I'm interested. I'm crypto curious and I'm really interested in what's going on in like NFTs and stuff. I think that's super oh, yeah? wild. Yeah, man. I, th- I think... It's pretty cool. Here's the thing. There's... I have two conflicting parts of my brain. Part one is this shit is Beanie Babies all over again. Part two of my brain says, whenever I have seen trends like this explode and then I have dismissed them, I have been pretty wrong. And I do fundamentally believe, I think the metaverse is like super overused now, but I do think that the melding of your online life and your offline life the probability that that decreases in the future is super low. The probability that it increases, I think, is reasonably high. And in that world, the ability to sort of like flex, you know, in the in the real world, you buy a car. In, in online, you need like some NFT. And I understand why people think that's nonsense, but I don't know why that's that different than buying like, I'm going to mess up, you know, like an Atomar. What the, what the hell? How do you say an AP watch? Or, um, you know, someone like Odemar Paget. Yeah, I, I, I knew I was going to mess it up. But yeah, like, that's okay. why is that Thank different? You. Like that versus a Rolex versus a Swatch. To me, NFTs are just the digital equivalent. It's just, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. No, I agree you got money you. to blow and you're going to blow it and you're going to signal to people and that's what it is. But it no, could I all totally implode. Agree with you. Right? I don't fucking know. Well, I mean, gosh, it's a lot to unpack in crypto. I totally agree with that sentiment. The question would be like, how do you make money from it? You know, how do you actually put on a trade that makes sense with a worldview? That's why like- This is an interesting question. Why don't we talk about your Mt. Gox claims? Yeah, sure. That's the thing that, I mean, worked really well. I mean, obviously. I bought a bunch for myself. I'll give a tiny bit of background, but I run capital for a, a, a few family offices and mainly distressed investments. And when I was running my hedge fund, I started buying these Mt. Gox bankruptcy claims in 2015, I guess. And, and what happened with Mt. Gox, just so people have a, a sense of the uh, yes. setup? So, so it was like, it was one of the largest, well, it was the largest. It was 70% of the volume at the time it went under. In 2014, they had a hack or, or maybe it was an inside job, but somebody hacked the exchange, stole like 
basically all the Bitcoin and everybody freaked out and filed for bankruptcy or insolvency administration in Japan and also in the States under what's called chapter 15. So I, I'm sort of a, a little bit of a distressed nerd, principally because it's the only area people really giving capital to invest. And also like, I don't know, I guess I am. It's probably the only thing where I know a lot more than, than most people for the rest. I'm, I'm basically pants at everything else. Let's just use that as a premise. And so I came across this trade and, and, and I was doing it in my, in my small hedge fund. You know, it's funny to kind of think about because I've liquidated my hedge fund since then and now just run the capital and bought a bunch of claims for myself as well as for this uh, one family office. And, you know, the trade worked out very well. I mean, I'd have to like actually do the math. I mean, I know what the kind of nav is, although I try not to think about it because it's it's just such a life-changing amount of money that crypto moves a thousand dollars. I mean, it's like a very... You know, it's it's like almost yeah, it's hard a me- to it's a meaningfully it yeah, and your your nav it, is tied to a super volatile asset. Yeah, right. So, so how long, long is it, as- when you did this? Just taking a step back. Yeah, please. How long did you think it would take you to realize the nav, for lack of a better term? Yeah, it was 2015. I thought it would be three to five years at the time. Okay, and now we're what and it's six what, years 2021. out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, six years in. And now, what are you thinking? Well, it should be out, if not the end of the year, uh, let's call it summer of next year is the out date, if you want to be conservative, because they're voting on the plan right now for distribution. Okay. What's interesting to me, I, I, I really believe this, Bill, which is like, I really think illiquidity breeds good behavior sometimes, yeah. a lot of times. It sort of ties your hands to the mask. It makes you actually follow the thesis and not just like wake up and be like, oh, shit, I'm totally cock this up and now oh true that's either i'm cursing like sailor. you Sorry. can say cock I, I really, this up i've never heard oh, okay, that okay. i think that's kind of funny i may adopt that oh, okay all right so so you so you really mess this up and I, you know this is like i can't believe i put money in this i'm such an idiot yeah you know and it's like that the quoted prices they could be your friend but boy they can give you some some like mental turmoil you know yeah. so I do know this is literally the discussion that we opened up with. Well, I mean, it just, to me, it's for myself, it's been good for me because I've totally sold stuff that I believed in the thesis. And I was just like, I just can't take any more pain. This like actually hurts my gut. I think it's good for you. I mean, some people are probably better at taking the, uh, the gut wrenching, you know, mark to market prices. Do you know what Mike, did you read the the, uh, thread that Mike Mitchell wrote where he said like, I think it was charter when it was down 40%, he literally threw up into a trash can. Because I think it was his only position at work. So feeling oh, it in really your gut funny. is something that uh, I know that people do. I have felt it. Usually when I feel that, I'm like, do not do a damn thing because this is real close to the bottom. Sometimes yeah, they, I have used that why... to tax loss sale and I have never been happy with that decision ever. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think investing can teach you a lot about life. It's almost like people say like, oh, if you have an emotion, don't necessarily react on it. Just observe it and be in the moment and feel the motion and how it almost like come outside of yourself and, and sort of just say, huh, this is really interesting that I feel this way. And why do I feel this way? And I wonder how long this will last. And then over time it sort of dissipates. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of think like, okay, what's the right decision? But you're right. I mean, but you know, Klarman says this, which is like, you know, if your whole portfolio is down, he said, he was talking about the financial crisis, I think. And he said, you know, we know guys that are great investors, but they had something on their portfolio that was half their book. Because he was talking about the perils of being too concentrated. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, when you're down 40% in your entire portfolio, you can't really think straight. You sort of like are in a paralysis 
I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah. For the hyper concentrated guys, which is, it's going to be really hard to stick to the program when your face is really being ripped off. I mean, 40% of your, of your entire investor's capital. I mean, on one position, I understand, but like on, on your entire book would be pretty painful. Oh yeah, for sure. I think we're in a period too where, you know, people have made a fair amount of money and things have run to a concentrated position. I've long said, I think that we should have more nuance around position sizing. Like, you know, I have 50% of my book at cost is different than I have 50% of my book because I let it run. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, I have 50% of my book in something, but by the way, my income is 30x bigger than you know, or right. my, my future earnings is 30x bigger than my book. Therefore, like, what do you really have? You don't, they just have like a marketing position, which is fine. Oh, so it's very interesting you say this. It's like a mental accounting issue, right? Yeah. It's like people, like even for myself, like I was posting like the size of certain positions I had on. And I was like, this is kind of disingenuous because A, I have a decent amount of income, like current income. I just make money every month, like running the stress deals. And then I also have this huge Bitcoin position effectively. So it's like, it's not, it feels disingenuous because people are like, oh man, this person's like 50% of their book in this. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, it doesn't show that I own a home and that I have this income and things like that. So yeah, I don't know. So what's your effective cost basis in Bitcoin? I'd have to think about it, but I mean, if my own personal claims that I own is probably like $80 or something something under a hundred. shit. Yeah. Oh, good for you, man. I'm happy for you. You know what? You say that's no, only no. one big swing, but like, how, how, so how did you, how do you find this idea? I actually read about it in the paper and was like, oh, this is really interesting. You can buy Bitcoin for, and then I sort of researched it and then figured it out. And, you know, I was like, I, you know, I was like, oh, this would be kind of fun to, to try to buy. I did it for fun. Yeah. I literally bought the first claim. because so I was like, I wonder if I could do this. This would be kind of cool. I actually almost bought Bitcoin when uh, in like 2010 when there was like a maybe it was 11 or 12, but it was it was really early. But I never bought it because I had someone convince me out of it because they thought it was absolutely ludicrous to go and uh, I'm, and I'm not like a Bitcoin fanatic, so I don't I don't want people to walk away with this. But but I am someone that's like a real believer in in sort of like focusing on the weird shit. Like I, for my, you know, and Bill, this would be, you know, my, not advice, but the, my approach would be like, keep most of your stuff. Once you're rich, keep all of your stuff and just simple, straightforward, like, Hey, let's just turn out dollars and then take a, a piece of it and just focus on crazy shit. You know, yeah, this fusion, is what I'm saying. Bitcoin. Yeah. The storage <laughs> portfolio and then the part that you can like actually level up your life. Yeah. And also there's nothing wrong. I mean, the, what you were saying where you're like, I want to support, I think on your last thing you were saying, I want to support products that I like, companies that I like, people that I like. I think it's it's not a form of charity, but I do think that there's something to be said for that. If anything, psychologically, I mean, I've done that a little bit in crypto where I've put money with a few people that I think are smart and I really like, and I think what they're doing is incredibly, honestly important compared to what I'm doing. And I sort of think like it comes back around because it gets you in the ecosystem and it's not even karma. It's just you sort of build out your network because at the end of the day, like, I don't know about for you, but most of the stuff I've found over the years is keeping a really strong network where people want to call you and want you to know about an idea they love or about some company they're investing in. Like that network is the, where the value is in my mind. But yeah. I mean, 
but on, on, on Mac Act, so yes, I found it. I read the paper and I bought it just for fun. And the trade was okay, but you were basically buying Bitcoin at a third of market price. And it was an okay trade. But then like I go in deeper and deeper. That's my other thing. I'm like a real big believer in sort of following the thread, which is really a Michael Price thing that I stole from Michael Price. He sort of says like you just keep following the thread further and further down. So what I did is I did that and it was like, okay, this is kind of cool. But then there was a time when you could buy the claims and get the crypto for free, which is that's when I got a family office to put on like a few million bucks of it. And that was really great. Do you get a promote um, from that or no? Yeah, yeah. It's just like a zero and 20. Nice. So, yeah. So I would say so you that, earned your 20 on that one. Yeah. They're going to be pissed was, when they cut the check or whatever, but you earned it. Well, I mean, we, we have to cut the check with them because we, we control the LLC, but yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I would trust the guy emphatically. You know, the funny thing is, it's like- No, I'm just saying when you look at the grossed up number, you're going to be like, fuck, that's a big check. But at the end of the day- You, you know got- what's crazy? I pitched the trade, Bill, I pitched the trade to literally everybody in like special sit land in New York, like every big hedge fund in New York, I probably pitched this to. And they all said no, every single one of them. Huh. I could go through a laundry list of hedge funds that people probably know that I pitched it to. Why did, why did and, they say no? Uh, was there a common reason? They thought it was too small. Yeah. And most guys were like, well, I mean, I did have a few people laugh at me because they were like, <laughs> Bitcoin? I was like, yeah, Bitcoin. They were like, Jesus Christ, kid. Yeah. We're trying to run a respectable organization. Here. That's right. How am I going to, how am I going to raise funds saying that I'm buying up Mount Gox claims? I can't do that. No, but I had a few people. That was the other thing. I suppose it's true of markets in general or business, right? Like you want an opportunity to be potentially big enough to want to work on it, but not so big that like Apple wants to crush you. you yeah. Know? Like, yeah, an interesting I don't niche. Want, right? You don't want something so mainstream that, I don't know, Tiger Global's like, yeah, I'll have that for lunch. And you're like, oh, shit. I yeah. just messed up the trade. Well, I think that's why you and I connected. I mean, especially after we did that space. I think we look at the world pretty similarly in that like there's we're both looking for pockets of inefficiency that have potential big yeah. upside and like that yeah. I like to be able to articulate why I think something's inefficient. Now that said, you know, I own big stuff, I own stuff like Google and whatever, but that's turned out to be a pretty good decision. So it's not always great to be in a Owning you know, in the smallest ever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, of search. Okay. Uh come at me for that. <laughs> I'm fine to take that heat. No, I think you did. You know, sometimes the monopoly trade, I should have been, uh, I don't know why I wasn't in the monopoly trade. I sort of like was in and out of them over the years, but I, I could never hold them. It just was too boring. And my mind was always like, ah, this is so boring. Well, dude, a like, lot I'm of people. don't get to do anything. A lot of people sold out of Google because it didn't move for a while. I actually like that setup. I like stocks that have like ripped. And then I bought Starbucks when it was in like a five-year consolidation period. Disney spent time in that. Like, I like that. I think people get tired of owning the security and then it's kind of like, oh, wow, there's a reason this thing ripped. Yeah. I also think like, you know, yeah, yes, I, I definitely think it's true. People get sort of bored. Also, if you're wealthy, I guess it doesn't matter. But if you're, if you're sort of broke, you're, you're kind of looking for a lottery ticket. You know, you're sort yeah. of like, I need this to happen now. <laughs> like, Not now, but now. I got to eat. Yeah. Now, now, right now. It is funny, though, that I think about it, like, why do people say no to Mt. Cox? I think that was one. And then more thoughtful people were a little like, hey, this sounds great, but, like, what am I going to put $10 million of this on? And I was like, I mean, that would be great. And they're, and they're like, see, that's why I don't want don't want to work on it. And so some people passed on it because of that. Yeah, I was, I was just talking to a woman this weekend 
who cuts minimum mm-hmm. check sizes of $200 million. I was like, I can't imagine. Give her my number, Bill. I, I don't <laughs> even know that you and I could absorb that. I, I, <laughs> I'll figure it out. Yeah, well, she's- no, uh, I hear you. Jesus Christ, $200 million at a time, yeah. I have her contact, but you know, she's at a pension fund, right? And it's like- Right. You know, she was talking about they bought- I don't want to like out who she is or anything, but they they buy like no don't don't like don't. fruits and stuff, right? And I was like, well, how's how's it gone? And it's gone like shit. But at the end of the day, like it, they could absorb it, and it's non correlated, and it's like okay. I mean, I mean, wait, they like directly buy fruits? They're in like the fruit fruit trade business now, land and whatnot, like on yeah. balance sheet. Yeah, like oh, land. okay, yeah, yeah. So it's really kind of interesting. The endowment model to the next level. Yeah, well, it's just so much money like what do you do uh, no i think it's smart i mean look i actually think that's if i had over a billion dollars like i would probably do quantitative strategies that i would never do at my size i would do arbitrage stuff because i don't want to take duration risk and because i feel like you're getting the same thing it's basically like a fixed income return but without duration nah, i shouldn't that's that's what do you mean like without duration well, like, I don't, I mean, being long anything investment grade, sub, whatever, I don't even know how low the rates yeah, are. Yeah, that seems crazy to me. I just can't get there. Who would do that? Oh, why wouldn't you just be long real assets? Like, buy like self storage units. Like, even if you pay up and the yield's two, three percent, like, I'd much rather that trade than two, three percent on my like triple B or double B, yeah. single A. Yeah, I do know that. And I agree with that. You know, I was sort of pitched on public storage when Elliot got involved. And I like Elliot. I don't oh, yeah. know. I mean, I know why I like them. I I can understand why people may not like me rooting for the Goliath. But there was part of me that Dude, was Elliot's like, great. I should just do this shit. Because, you know, I, I think over time they they do create value. And then I looked at the stock and I was like, ah, oh, I could have, that could have been my so bond allocation, you know? <laughs> I uh, look, I mean, I, I think, and, and to me, that's what it's what know, cigarettes were for I me still, for a minute. I see. I, I'm a Buffett's, of course, you know, amazing. I, I love his sort of, I feel like his investment style is sort of inexorable truths. Everything has like, he only wants to bet on things that he thinks are sort of inexorable truths. Now, he could still be wrong, but it's like people, shit they own, storage, like, hmm. I got a storage unit. I can tell you, I don't really want to get in a fight with my wife about what we should throw away. I'm just like, all right, I'll just pay the damn bill. <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. And if you ever, if you're ever late, do you have a self storage unit, Bill? Do I? Do you have a? Yeah, yeah. Do you? Have I one? had like, one that I a, was in self storage. I had a storage unit that I was housing furniture in, and I would have rather burn my right, furniture I, than keep it at that point. That was exactly. insanity. Well, that's a well, good the, business. Well, my favorite is. If you're, oh, it's a great business. And what's great is if you're late by like a day, they like put a lock on your game. Yeah, you get nothing. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's like, and that's ours now. And you're like, no, 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 I'll pay the bill. Like, please unlock it. Uh, you know what so else I'd like to own just, is mobile home parks. I don't, what's the theory on the mobile home parks? Like, what's the inexorable truth there? Well, I think that you have a lot of nimbyism going on, right? There's not a ton of approvals going mm, on. You have okay. a, a real problem of affordable housing in this country. And you have, mm-hmm. you know, a scenario where, so my, my buddy's dad does it. And the cap rates are at, at the point where they're like upsettingly low. Um, but, you know, what isn't? And I guess what his, the way that he has explained it to me is that, and it's getting more efficient. 
I don't want to like frame this as, oh, it's easy money to be made. But a lot of the operators are still sort of mom and pops and they're underutilized. And if you can have a creative mind about how to invest in common area space and make it more livable, or if you can have a creative way to create, you know, I don't know if it's a basketball court, right? Like something that is very cost efficient, can last a long time. I don't know if it's digging out a pond, like I don't know what it is, but it's creating something for the tenants that are really forgotten about, right? And that that like resonates a lot for me is is businesses that are actually providing services for people that most people don't give a shit about in the business world. I like that stuff a lot because you're making people's lives better. And they're people that you know, need it. Now you do really have to worry about your tenant base and that stuff because you can have drug problems in communities and stuff. And that's an issue. All right. Also, like I'm, I'm, I assume that the uh, mobile, mobile home market is niche enough to where, you know, Blackstone, I mean, Samzel rolled up a lot. Oh, Samzel's in mobile home? Yeah. He's got a lot of like really, really good stuff. So if you're driving along the beach and you see a mobile home park, a lot of that is (laughs) Samzel. Of course, he monsters. has one at the beach. He's great, man. I, have you ever read his old? There's an old article about him, or he he wrote the article. Is an article. I think it's called "The Grave Dancer." It's like the original. His book is great, by the way. But this original. Did you listen to it? And did you listen to the book, or did you read it? I read it and I listened to it. I found his voice and just hit. I just, I think he's great. I don't know if my Samsel voice is good, but I think it's good, so I That's like to good. do it. He's the man. I've, Am I Sam Zell is a subtle? beast. Yeah, he really is. Like, I love how he's he talks some, about like wearing some strikeouts. Yeah, but who doesn't have strikeouts in this game? No, of course. No, of course. And that's like the thing about blowups and stuff or strikeouts is, you know, structure matters too, right? If it's in some LLC mm-hmm. that's away from the parent entity, I mean, that's part of structuring a deal. Doesn't help the single LLP owner of some whatever, but in aggregate, I don't, I don't think that I fault people. No, like no, he's done great. Strikeouts. He's amazing. No, 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 of course not. And there's always going to be, I wouldn't call him strikeouts. People shit on Bill Miller over this. They're like, oh, he blew up once. And it's like, well, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, but if you look at a career, still pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, someone was asking me once, we we're having a discussion because I was working on this big distress deal that didn't come together. And also, like, it really pissed me off because, like, we were almost there. We were just short, like, basically, like, seven and a half million bucks. But anyway, the long story short was someone was saying, like, oh, how do we de-risk this transaction? And I was like, uh, what are are you talking about? He's like, well, this is very risky. It's a leverage structure. I was like, I was like, dude, the only way to de-risk this is to put less money in it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you personally, right? He wanted me to figure out how to de-risk the transaction. And I was like, we can't be changing around the transaction. It's like a stock that could be a 10x, could be a zero. It's like, you, you can't de-risk it. You you just need to, instead of putting a million, you should put 150,000, whatever your your number is that matches your risk tolerance and you know how much capital you have, right? And yeah. Like what kind of drawdowns you're willing to take. Yeah, it's an asset but allocation I mean, way. That's it. You can't de-risk risk. Right. Yeah, I, I hate all that shit. Like all these institutional people talk about like managing risk and, and stuff like that. Like I'd almost rather manage my own risk than have them doing it. That's why I don't even like any, a lot of institutional, even though I think some of these hedge funds are great. I think like they're trying to like manage a risk for you. And it's like, I just rather than be trying to shoot the lights out and I'll just manage it by allocating less to them. Yeah. You know? Well, I, 
this may be saying the same thing, but from a different lens, one thing that I have seen from some of my friends that operate in the industry for real is some of them are getting pushed to get more and more concentrated because the allocator Mm -hmm. spreads the bets. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but they're pushing you to take like real life and career risk. And then they're diversifying (laughs) their risk. Like that's fucked up to me. I think it's smart. (laughs) Well, it is, it is. But the fact of the matter is like, if you're betting on 30 managers and telling them all to be concentrated, right. I, I don't know. It it just, the skin in the game is different, which is, yeah. you know, that's an incentive yeah. issue. Yeah, it is. I kind of like really love how Klarman runs their, their book, which is, I mean, I don't know exactly. I haven't worked there or anything, but he's trying to run absolute return, you know, sort of strategy. He's doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, I know he gets written about for whatever's public, but they do all kind of private stuff, a ton of real estate stuff, a ton of private capital. And I think private credit stuff. I see him in distressed land all the time or not all the time, but sometimes they're pretty disciplined. They're never going to like shoot the lights out and stuff because they're normally on the conservative side of the risk spectrum. Although like, I'm sure they, I mean, they bought, what was it? The nuclear business that um, went under, not PG&E, Westinghouse. They showed up and bought like, uh, I think it was one of the utilities insurance claims. That was an amazing trade. Hmm. They literally made, they like doubled their money on like serious money. I think they, they bought a claim that was a $600 million claim for like two, 300 and doubled their money in it, it, literally a week. Whoa. It's a long story, but Brookfield showed up and bought the business. It ended up being a 100% repay case. Hmm. Or, or, I don't remember. It was not 100% repay, close to 100% repay. That was a phenomenal trade. Phenomenal. Hmm. I mean, it just got lucky. What's the story sure behind that? You said months. it's a long story. How did it set up? Yeah, so Westinghouse was a, they were building nuclear plants, I think one in South Carolina and one in Georgia. And they were like 80% complete and they were like $5 billion over budget. Mm. Five, you know, five with a, you know, billion with a B. So they filed for bankruptcy. And I think they were, if I recall, they were suing the contractor saying that they owed, or no, the utilities were suing them saying that they were on the hook for the cost overruns. And they were saying, no, 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 no. It's, this stuff was out of scope. You guys kept changing the plans or, you know, the, you know, how the, this was supposed to fit with this, right. It's like stuff that was not agreed to. And so the cost overruns are on you. So the two utilities that were supposed to take delivery and pay for it, that wasn't it. It was Westinghouse designed it to Sheba. I want to say, which was, ah, I can't remember who was the builder. And then we had the utilities and they basically got in a fight over the cost overruns. Yeah. And, Somebody's saying change uh, orders, question, somebody's saying incompetence, yada, yada, $5 billion. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah, and that's fine. And here's the bill. And um, <laughs> we, I looked at it because I was trying to buy mechanics liens on the nuclear plants because mechanics liens are great. They hmm. normally have, they're what are called submarine liens. And usually you don't have to actually file a UCC one. Normally you come ahead of the dip and things like that or the debtor in possession loan. So it was a messy situation. I How big were the liens that you were looking at? Yeah, they were all like a few million bucks. So like there were a few that were, I love cases like that where the plant's not done and you sort of have all these liens because normally they can't be primed. I mean, they they, they normally can't be primed by the debtor possession loan because you were actually coming in. By you know, prime, do you mean lender. jumped in security? Yeah, exactly. You can't be like jumped in. Sometimes you can, but a lot of times you cannot unless they pay you what's called adequate protection. 
that's like a bankruptcy term that would take an entire episode to uh, explain. I'm not even sure a lot of bankruptcy professionals understand what adequate protection is. I'm not even sure the bankruptcy code itself understands what adequate protection means. Well, this is like really it seems like from a nerd. high level, it's just saying that they've got to give you enough money to then jump you in priority. But then the, then you get into an argument about what's enough. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. You're exactly right. I mean, the 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 code is is, is super vague on this. And Seems like a great way for attorneys to make a lot of money, is what it sounds like. <laughs> well, my favorite is when you really get into bankruptcy arguments. People will say things like, "Well, what was the legislative intent of the word is shall?" You know, all these. So people really get deep into. Well, the code before they changed it used to say this. And so if you think about why they changed it, it's because they wanted to say that. So you get into these these arguments. I love all that nerd stuff. I mean, I kind of, I didn't really give much background, but I'm, I am from Georgia and my parents are bankruptcy lawyers there. And that's how I sort of learned a lot about the bankruptcy code. So really just hanging out at the courthouse. Yeah. And I've kind of used that as my unique advantage. I think for me, the lightning bolt or the whatever, the lightning bulb that, that sort of went off was... I was reading actually securities analysis, you know, like the 10th edition one with all of the great intros was like a David. Oh, yeah, like Carmen was in it. And Carmen uh, did a chat. Jason's like, wife they do, like, did the something, intros. I think, in that, right? Yeah, Jason's yeah. wife did one. And I remember. I think Greenblatt yeah, like, may have uh, in that. Anyway, yes, I Greenblatt, know. Greenblatt, I think, did one. Anyway, I loved it. And I remember him talking about, he was basically talking about like buying into liquidations and litigations and all this stuff. And basically, it was to me, a Graham paint by numbers approach that people, you know, kind of pull away with Graham and say, oh, you know, he was a quant. Not really. I mean, if you really read it, like he's like a, the intellectual father of, of like modern day value investing or special set investing. And what I think is interesting is he's sort of, the, the, to me, the philosophy is what's interesting, right? It's still so true. I almost feel like I should get out of the quote book and read some bits of it. But he basically was, to, in my mind, he was like, he was basically saying you should be using your unique advantages to just print money. You yeah. know? And then, and I was like, Oh, well I know a lot about bankruptcy. Maybe I should do that. How often anyway, do you need attorneys? So, you got to need attorneys all the time. Yeah. Like, how, like what's your minimum amount of capital that you think that you could run your strategy with? For myself or for like an institution? I mean, if you're buying claims, like let's say you're doing No, I'm being work. selfish. It's let's like, say it's me. <laughs> I mean, so we do bankruptcy trade claim book that we run for a family office. And that's like a few people. And I mean, right now, I think our book is like $20 million in claims. It's hard to scale that, but the returns are good, but it's hard to scale. And then the dip business, like debtor possession loans, those are great. The, that's actually my favorite area because, and I think claims are great too. But for me, I, I like the idea of trying to take over companies at very cheap valuations. Yeah, It's, a, it's not a secret. I mean- the medium is the message, right? Like the medium in which you're doing it is maybe a, di- a little bit unique, but the the end of the day, you're just trying to buy cheap shit. Yeah. You know, you're trying to buy cheap shit that's not like crap. Sometimes it's pretty hairy. So, you know, there's always a question around whether it's crap or not. We looked at a travel MLM during the, during a what? the COVID. A travel MLM? You know, oh, like a yeah. Oh, okay. Marketing. All right. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. That and, sounds and, hairy. <laughs> That was pretty hairy. We were just like, is this a legitimate business? It was pretty funny because all of the conversations at the family office, there was there was one person on the call that kept referring to it as a Ponzi scheme. And I was just like, you know, we're not going to be able to buy this company if you keep referring to it as a Ponzi scheme. That's right. Jesus. 
Yeah, yeah. We ha- we can't call our own purchase a Ponzi scheme. That's not going to work out very yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. It's because because he, he was sitting there saying like, so the the way the Ponzi works, and I was like, yeah, just, can you? It's an it's an MLM. I was like, please, can you stop calling it Ponzi? <laughs> MLM's really interesting. Uh, anyway. I you know like I understand why everybody doesn't like them. On the other hand, man, Amway's a hell of a business. And, you know, I'm not against them. I just think it's, it's like a lot of things. It's how it's done. Like mobile home parks, people can say, oh, what a junky business. You know, these people like take advantage, you know, I'm sure you could make it, anything. And I think MLMs get a lot of heat because there are bad actors, you know, because yeah. again, it is a lot of it is selling a dream, you know, like that these people are going to become independently wealthy selling lotions and potions. You know, it's sometimes it's a bit too much. My dad, well, I think it was my uncle actually got into Mona V and I went to one of the Mona V meetings and I was just like, this is crazy. I can't get down <laughs> with this. I, I bought some of the juice to support my uncle or whatever. And you know, whatever, but fuck that was crazy. Wait, Mona V was the wine company. No, no, it was As- Asahi berries, sir. Oh, scoozy. It was, it, dude, it got big for a minute. Uh, the people at the top of the Ponzi did well. Ponzi. See, there you go. Can't call it a Ponzi. Yeah, like, this is going to work if you're going to call it a Ponzi. That's what was happening in the family when we were talking about it. Of course, like they have also reputational issues that they were worried about in terms yeah. of the transaction, and that, which is which is a kind of a whole other uh, conversation. I mean, I love doing the distress stuff. It's fun. It's hard. It's complicated, and there's great deals. But it, you know, it's not everything. There's lots of deals everywhere. I'm always interested. You must meet like some super interesting people. I love meeting people doing different strategies and different stuff. Yeah. I want to have more of them on. I'd like to, I'd like to have like credit guys. I'd like to have distress guys. I'd like to have, you know, all that stuff. Cause I think I like to decompose and think about how people think of bets. Like that's, that's just kind of cool to me. And I'd love for somebody in credit to be able to explain to me outside of we have a mandate and this is how I get paid, why taking institutional grade risk right now makes sense. I think I can get it if you're hedging against deflation, but that's like the only scenario that I can see. And maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Maybe that makes sense. Because hmm. every, every... I mean, I know guys that, I, that are keeping duration short and... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you could reach for some yield or whatever. I, just, I think I'd just rather have cash. I don't know. Maybe can't that make, doesn't make any sense. Can't make any, any money selling cash, my friend. Yeah, well, I know. I know. That's but, the other thing I think, you know, a lot of the, uh, not just the industry, but even like, you have to remember that most people are trying to sell you something. You know, they're yeah. trying to like, even no offense to emerging managers, like they want you to invest with them. You know, it's like yeah. everybody sort of has something to sell. So it's sometimes the optimal strategies have no no natural you, I think you were saying this earlier. Right now, I'm just selling like, no Koifin. I recommend everybody go out and try that product. For real, I am happy that they're my sponsor. But I'm, I did that slide cool, that in. That's pretty cool, man. That's congrats. Congrats <laughs> yeah, on well, that. I, you know, I don't know. I got to figure out. Uh, I got to figure out what I'm trying to sell. But for now, it's just been fun not to sell anything. Well, there's nothing wrong with selling something if you believe in the product. I'm just saying that as an investor, again, it's back to this idea. Like sometimes the best action is in action. Yeah. And it's, it's so boring. And, and there's no, you were talking about like why something's cheap. Well, sometimes 
why there's no buyers or something is because there's no natural seller of it. Like even liquidations are a good pocket of like fun opportunities. Like, you know, you make, you grind out 10 or 20%. Yeah. Liquidations. I got, I kind of, Oh yeah, those are great. It's something that I haven't spent much time on, but I, someday when my man, Mike and I are, are done with some of our current bets, I got to have him coach me a little through the liquidation phase, because if I could grind out 10 or 20%, like I'd be pretty okay with that. So I did a bunch of liquidations when I ran my fund and I don't really do them much anymore. So I'm kind of like torn. To me, it's almost like a fixed income return. So maybe this is an answer to doing bonds. But uh, the reason partially they exist because they're small, but also like there's no fanfare around liquidations. I mean, sure, maybe on FinTwit, there's a few guys writing them up on their Substack. Oh, no, dude, you don't get Substack subs. Yeah, you don't get Substack subs writing up liquidations. You got to write up Etsy and right. shit like that. Right. Well, my point is there's no fanfare around it. There's no coverage. Yeah. The only firm I know that I feel like does that, I wouldn't say in scale. I mean, you see Balpost doing it and you see like Fairlawn doing it and sometimes special sit managers will put them on. But the returns are low. You know, you're talking like 10% returns probably as an IRR. I mean, it's not low, but I think it's very high for the risk. You know, like I don't think there's a whole lot of risk in a lot of them. Normally, Have you ever seen one go bad? Like what's it, what, what are the risks that people should be aware of in a liquidation is maybe a better way to ask the question. Horrific IRR. <laughs> that, yeah. That's, that's the risk. Just absolutely worst. I, you know, you end up making 10% over five years hmm. and you just want to like blow your brains out because it takes so long to get paid on it. I mean, are these pretty, they're pretty close to SPACs trading below trust value, right? I mean, they can't be that much mm-hmm. different. Yeah, I suppose they should trade in parity. Although SPACs all now traded premiums, right? I mean, no, I, oh, I they guess they got hammered. Get the allocations. They've gotten hammered. They're all like below oh, trust. Really? Yeah, there's a ton below trust. A ton. Who was on? Was it you on Twitter? Or was it Mike Mitchell on Twitter saying? And yeah, I know in 2009 you could do you could buy trust at like you know 70, 80 cents on the dollar was to go to me. to go to a dollar. Yeah, it wasn't it, me. that's all cool and everything. But remember when that was like March of 2009, you also yeah, your opportunity like cost that went huge. up 15x. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the other problem with liquidations. It's great for like a rich family office, but there's an opportunity cost because your money's pretty much locked in there. So yeah. unless you can get someone to borrow against that book, like that's not liquid at all. Also, it doesn't mark to market well. Like if you're running a fund, like it's hard, it's marked to market. You get an administrator asking all kind of questions like, oh, what's going on with this? Like, didn't you say it was going to pay out last year? I'm like, well, you know, eh, takes a little longer and mm-hmm. and it's it won't trade. So then it's like, it's not a side pocket. It could be a side pocket and you might have to side pocket it. You get pushback on those kind of things, like where the stocks don't trade and stuff like that. So it's probably perfect for a home gamer. I was going to say, but you're making again, me more and more excited. I think they're great. I mean, it's I get tempted by them from time to time. What I find interesting about it, again, it's like the microcap guys are sort of zigging in and out of positions and think they're going to on, on track to be Warren Buffett. And, and the same thing with liquidations. They're like, oh, I did all this deep analysis. I'm like, dude, you don't need to like <laughs> go crazy here. Like it's just cash and there's like expenses. And if you spent more than 20 minutes on this, I'm going to I'm gonna get you a uh, Sudoku book. <laughs> <laughs> like, you need some other hobbies. I like to, I wouldn't say I like to overthink it, but sometimes it's, it's good to spend a lot of time thinking about it, but then sometimes it's just very straightforward and you, sh- you shouldn't overanalyze it. I don't think you're going to get better predictions through more analyzing. 
Are there like shysters in the space that you have to avoid? I mean, this is really something that I've never looked at, but I know that I should. Usually, I've never run across one with shysters. I would say that you have guys with incentives to burn through more dollars than they should. Yeah. uh, Or like give themselves a job for an extra three years. Sure. So, you know, the incentive structure is, hey, why not be ultra conservative and take an extra two years to liquidate or blah, blah, blah. So, but I've never really, in liquidations, you don't really run across shysters. No. Also, you sometimes you get guys who like end up, they end up like with shells and they just sit on these things forever. Yeah. And those are, but I would say that per unit of risk, you're way compensated in my mind. There's, there's some great, there's, a, there's only a little bit of literature on empirical returns of liquidations. And it's quite interesting. I mean, one, there was one in the journal portfolio management from like the 80s. And it was 30% returns doing liquidations. Now, that was a different time, but I still think you can get into the double digits doing liquidations. I mean, if someone has any updated empirical, so I honestly think you should just buy them all. They'll just buy them all. Don't think about it too much. Like, it's not, it's not your friend overthink it. Like, you know, do a few to like really follow it. And then once you get it down, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. I mean, you're not going to get rich. It's for an, it's, it's a, it's a strategy for someone who's already wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it makes sense. Are you, this is why you and Mike get along. How often do you guys talk? Not that often. Because this is what Mike I did. Mean, we, like Mike was straight up. Oh, did he? Yeah, for a while. Like I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm almost certain that his strategy when he left his firm is he's like, well, I can do liquidations and basically make myself, you know, my income. Then he stumbled into some other things. But th- I mean, that's how he found that's Kyle. Funny. Oh, that's interesting. You're right. That makes sense. Because I actually knew about the security because I was friends with Larry back in the day, Larry Sweats. And so I knew about Atasca or whatever the name of what it was before. Yeah. And I should have owned some just to support Larry. See, if I should have owned it to support Larry because I thought Larry was great, but I was going through a phase where I was like, no more cash shells, no more liquidations. Because I just basically wound up my fund and I was like, everything that was like a tiny... Piant, micro cap, pico. What do the what do they say when they're really small? Pico cap, whatever. I don't know. You know what I mean. I don't traffic in that stock. yet. Pico, pico cap, nano cap. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I was like, I was having a reaction to, it, so I was like, oh my god, because I had to sell some, basically give some of the stuff away, because I mean, all of my bankruptcy claims and stuff paid out, but these like pico caps and nano caps, like I just couldn't get rid of the things. Mm. Anyway, I had a stock that yeah it was the first time that and i mean talking to somebody like you you've had it for a long time but i had something that had like no bid for like two three weeks or whatever and <laughs> two three weeks how about two three years <laughs> i know well that's that's the thing that was interesting is you know i'm so used to having that liquidity so it's kind of interesting to be like okay right. well this thing i know where this is marked but like this mark is just it's nonsense well, it's tough on smaller fund managers. They all get sucked into this stuff, I think, because the valuations are incredible. But you start having issues around like, is this level one? Is this level two? Yeah. What mark are you using? Are you marking it to the bid? Well, I am the bid, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I own it and I'm the bid. Yeah. So it makes it tough. So I think it's great for home gamers. And there's a lot of stuff out there. Like I have a friend who was talking to me about Waxman recently, which is like a very well-known, well-trodden sort of whatever a nano cap it trades for like i don't even know a few dollars and the, like the real estate in the business is probably worth like a hundred dollars a share 
but the guys that run it are hard to trust, haven't been as shareholder friendly as a lot of people would like. And I think that a lot of those things exist. For me, if you have enough capital and, and you know enough and you can try to figure out an angle for unlocking the value, those are interesting. But I'm not sure I would touch those. Liquidations are different. There's like a mechanism for realization. You know, it's already there. Not to do any. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is the old Munger incentive thing, right? Where like a liquidation, at least you don't have to worry about the incentives as much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, could you do more net-net driven value strategy? I think, yes, if you control the cash flows. What I worry about with some of those is they they don't control the cash flows. Yep. And it scares me because the person controlling them scares me. This it's, is why it's not, it's not to say this stuff doesn't work. No, well, this is why I didn't. I'm, I haven't invested in Intrepid Potash in a while, and I I know it's ripped, and I'm happy for the longs because I I did invest in it in the past, and I have followed it. But end of the day, like yeah, fuck, man, I oh god, I hate looking <laughs> at some stuff in 2020 that I held for like a little while. But it was so cheap that I was like, I I don't, I know that I can't really trust this guy, but also it's up 3X since then. So, but end of the day, yeah. I couldn't hold it because the guy, yeah, well, 3X actually out of 2020 is not that impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the guy that runs it, like, I'm not convinced he doesn't use it as his piggy bank. And mm-hmm. that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I think it's a problem also if there's no liquidity in the name. But, but I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, I think, I think the biggest, what's the, I don't know, the biggest miss ever. I remember once I was looking at the WWE when they were transitioning from pay-per-view to OTT. That was a great story. It was yeah. a fantastic setup. The stock totally fell out of bed. They basically ripped pay-per-view out and they were going OTT. And stock was down a bunch. I can't remember, like, was it the 20s and went down to like 10 bucks or something. And now I don't even know, it's like 60 or 80 bucks or something. Hmm. But it was such a great setup. It's quite a liquid name. I remember looking at the proxy and I was like, wait, I was like, Steve McMahon makes $14 million a year or no Vince McMahon. It was either Vince McMahon or it was, it was some former wrestler. Yeah. Uh, Maybe it was Vince McMahon. And I was just like, I can't own a stock. The fucking wrestler makes $14 million a year. Yeah. I was like, it's just, it just feels wrong. And I was like, wait, private jet, you you know, like, you know how to read the proxy. I just think some of that stuff can, it can throw you off though. I, I think some of the stuff is, can really throw you off. It's like not as relevant as you think, even though I know people say, oh, too many red flags. Like, you know, it's like, okay, well. Well, that's, I asked Gabelli, he had pitched, I think it was MSG in 2015. And I, we were at the Berkshire dinner that he hosts, right? And I stood up and I asked a question in a room full of people. And I said, you know, I just don't understand, like, yeah, Isaiah Thomas has, like, these sexual, you know, harassment allegations, and now he's in charge of the women's basketball team. Like, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. And Dolan's, like, flying around on a helicopter, and, like, what what's going on here? <laughs> Throwing and, money out of the helicopter. Yeah, just making it rain from the sky. And Gabelli just looks at me, and he's like, where are you from? And I said, Chicago. He's like, you don't get it. And if you were from New York, you'd get it. And at the end of the day, the Dolan family has made me a lot of money. And if you don't like it, you don't have to own it. And I was like, okay, there you have it. All right. Well, that was a succinct answer. (laughs) It was. You know what happened though? I will now sit down. (laughs) Well, that's what happened. But then that night, I offered to buy him a beer. My whole life changed after that. He spent like two- Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he's a man. He spent like two hours with me. And, you know, we're not friends or anything, but he's he's always been kind to me. Dude, he seems- I love that guy. He's like a deal machine. Actually, you know- 
you know who ran his partner capital? This guy named like Sal Moya, and he only did liquidations. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Huh. So like the partner capital at Gabelli, this guy, his name was Sal. I'm missing up his last name, but like Sal Moya or something. He's on like the board of a few like Arlicks, you know what I mean? Like rural telcos that Gabelli has. Yeah. But he used to run a book for Gabelli and some of the partners at Gamco for like a long time. And almost a half, if not more, of this book was just liquidations. If I recall correctly, Gabelli's got like, it's either a net operating loss or like a cash shell or something. It's got like big investors. It's like him and two other guys. And part of me was like, I should just kind of have a little bit of this to see what they do with it. But then I I never know what they're going to do with it. Yeah. So... I don't, he's I mean, a great guy. I, I want him them. to come on the pod, man, but I don't know. We'll see. I gotta. I have to figure out how to pitch him in a better way. I told him, I said, I want to do like an interview of you, of like your career. And cool. he sent me like a Business Insider article. And I was like, eh, this isn't quite what I was thinking, but whatever. <laughs> I was thinking something a little deeper. <laughs> I like him. I like him. I think he's amazing he's an idea junkie i'm like blown away at how many ideas and how on top i'm in touch with a lot of markets he can be yeah although i guess i guess he's done a lot of media there's some rhyming themes auto media but he's the man honestly like i can't i can't hope to come up with that many ideas i sort of i think part part of the guys that run money at scale that that are good are very good at probably sourcing and and just like having lots of ideas because it's it's hard to fill a full, a full book of like institutional quality or like really high quality uh, stuff versus, you know, picking a few names that you spend a lot of time on as a, like a home gamer. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I, you know, my sense of him is he's probably not the easiest human in the world to work for, but most guys that come from nothing and create billions are not. And I've always heard that he has treated like the people that have left very well. So I don't know. He's always been kind to me. So I got no beef with him. No, he's cool. I, I think he's great. I, 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 he's he's someone that's up there for me. Like the whole private market value. Like I'm a big believer. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not that hard to think about why that would be applied. But he's right. He's like, what would a knowledgeable person? It's like it's actually a better way to think about like value investing. Like, what would a knowledgeable person pay for this? And I want to pay a lot less. It's like, and he wants yeah. a catalyst, which makes perfect sense and to me, right? Because you're not like stuck yeah. in some idea. No, he's great. And you can yeah, also yeah, yeah. track. I mean, it. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. You know, like if you if you well, have catalyst. a catalyst and it doesn't happen, you can be like, all right, I was wrong. You know, within two years, I think this should happen. Okay, I was wrong. Yeah. I mean, feedback. Yeah, you got to have feedback loops are great because it helps you learn. It's like, you know, you go to, you know, you're playing golf. Like the feedback's pretty pretty straightforward, right? It's like, oh, shit, maybe I need to like, maybe my swing does suck. You know, <laughs> that ball just <laughs> chili dips across the, uh, the fairway. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, so no the doubt. feedback is good. I think it's good when you're young. I think it's great to look, do special sits when you're young because it sort of teaches you a discipline of like how to look at companies, analyze them, analyze corporate transactions. And you don't have to do it forever. And it really is hard to scale special situation stuff up. And then Greenblatt basically says that. It helps you really learn kind of the craft of the mechanics, you know, of just like doing work on companies. I got to get Clarkin on here. You know Matt, right? Clark Street Value? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's cool. Yeah, yeah he's, he's cool. the man. Yeah, I like Matt. Yeah. So. I like all his real estate stuff. Dude, yeah. you were long, ugh, Colony. I totally got, I can't, ugh. I was well, given the idea, I was fed it, and I knew it was smart, 
That's that's ah. that is the only thing that I will take credit for is I I I knew the setup and I I bought into the you know political stink is keeping people away and this is a big time change with the CEO and I couldn't find anyone that would talk shit about Gansey at all. So the combination you of know, those events made sense to me. You know, I didn't know who he was and I totally judged him as an outsider because when he came in, so I was long at like, so I was, I was looking at it and I'm not really big on real estate plays in general. Cause I normally think that they're just not fringy enough, you know, like it's too straightforward. Like they're never going to get that dislocated, but that one did. And when Gansey came in, it's perfect. I was my favorite setup is like CEO change. But I remember like looking him up and I was like, this guy's really tan and he plays polo. Like, yeah. And he lives in Boca, like, which can't. is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. did, Boca yeah, scares the shit out of me. S- Southern Florida. Yeah. What? Yeah. What's going on with uh, Florida and fraud? I don't know what it is. It's like a, a Mecca for. What's well, the Homestead Florida. Act? Oh, that's like true. they can't touch your house. So like these guys right. come down and they build these mega homes and then they go to jail. But it's like, it doesn't matter. They come out and they have their house. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. That's Dennis true. Kozlowski. Um, there's there's tons of guys that, you know, I don't know. I mean, I used to go to school with some kids whose dads rumoredly spent some time in the uh, clinker. But, the clinker. Yeah. The, the pin. I don't know. But I like all the different people are doing. I, I do think Contound Town has kind of taken over the, the what, the limelight, whatever the phrase would be, taken over like the the stage of, of all, even a lot of fintwit and stuff like that, but special set is great. I mean, it's just hard to scale his work. It's like grinding out dollars. Well, um, I think the compound town has done well for a number of reasons and a number of them are valid. And I think some of them were probably unforeseen. I hate to be the guy that says, let's see how the next couple of years go. But I, I do think that there's going to be some areas. It's, it's just the nature of, you know, adaptive systems that, the thing that wins for so long can't win forever, but you know, maybe they can, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean the, the monopoly trade, I would call it a monopoly trade. Like anything that's like a dominant tech company. I mean, geez, it's hard to, hard to argue that you shouldn't be long. Well, not shouldn't be long, but I can understand the thesis. You say like, I can kind of back into like, I can be like, yeah, that's totally plausible and probably right. I'm not long it, but I get, I get why someone could be, could be long it. Yeah. And I think too, like some of these businesses that have executed for a long time in the same way that returns compound, so does competitive position. So some of these businesses that have mm-hmm. executed and executed and executed, I mean, you know, they may continue to take share. And if they take share, you would think that as their relative advantage continues to grow, so do their relative profit pools. And as that continues to grow, it probably surprises people to the upside and then their stocks continue to work. Like I, I can get there on the idea. I just kind of, I guess I, I have a natural bias to fade it. Uh, to fade it, yeah. Not not, not to I go short can, per se, make, but to say like, I should probably no, be looking somewhere it. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? No, no, I agree. I agree. I can't disagree with that. I mean, I think there's just so many ways to make money is, you know, money's make money in markets. You don't have to be doing everything, you know, it's sort of like just play your game. You know, for me, I like the special stuff. I kind of like working on stuff where it might not work, but if it does, the payoffs are really, really big. Yeah. That's probably, 
I don't know, maybe it's something inside myself. It's sort of like deep, deep inside me. I'm like kind of an underdog or have this sort of inclination to want to find these underdogs type situations. So I should take money and put it aside to not pull it, you know, because, you know, mathematically the underdogs are, you know, just that, like, a, I, I suppose in a NPV calculation, it's a negative, you know, negative return strategy if you're not careful. On the like, other so. hand, you kind of made the bet and the bet worked and, you know, now you'll have uh, your family office that you get to work with. So maybe, maybe take a percentage <laughs> of that and put it in the safe stuff or whatever, and then uh, keep your I underdog hope, hope mentality like for the rest. current ones, no. How do you get paid, yeah, by probably, the way? You're probably right. Are you going to get paid in Bitcoin or are you going to get paid in fiat? Well, so I, so I own a bunch of claims myself and on that stuff, like I'll just get, yeah, you'll get paid some fiat and mostly crypto for like the family office that we ran capital for. And we also buy claims for a large crypto hedge fund now, basically the same trade. They'll get paid. I think both of them will want the crypto. So hmm. we'll get paid probably in crypto. It yeah. also helps from a tax perspective if we get distributions in crypto. Hmm. As opposed to in fiat, because there's, I don't know if this is really true, but there's, there's some tax, there's some basically tax people that are saying that it might not be a taxable event if you're getting distributions in crypto. I don't know. It's Can you of, enter into the like total we'll return see. swaps to then like get some crypto exposure off the table? Oh, I've spoken with a few people about this. You know, it's, it's still a pretty nascent market. It's very hard to... If I just had Bitcoin, yeah, I'm sure I could could enter a derivatives transaction. But until I have Bitcoin, these claims are too off the run. Yeah, <laughs> to be collateral for anything. Yeah. But it's it's an interesting idea, and that's actually probably what we should do, which is like take take distributions. I never really went into this, but I don't just own Mt. Gox. I also own this other thing called Bitcoinica, which that's really where I put all of my personal money. So huh. that one is that's why I got it on so so cheap. So what was that? It was basically like a so they sort of nested docket. You had Mt. Gox, which was the largest exchange, but they didn't allow leverage. If you wanted leverage, oh well, there's this thing called Bitcoinica, and it was in New Zealand, and that was like the first Bitcoin like CFD exchange. I mean, it was all totally unregulated, but effectively these were like contracts of difference. And so you would, if you posted, you know, Bitcoin, you would make like ten or twelve percent a year. And if you wanted leverage, you were basically borrowing their, their crypto. But of course, they had all of the coins actually on Mt. Gox. Huh. <laughs> so when Mt. Gox went under, they were like, oh, little problem here. Hmm. So they ended up filing in New Zealand. I mainly bought those because they were cheaper. So those were like, at a, they're still cheaper, but they used to be at like a fifth of the fifth. So you were basically buying them for like, no, it's not, it's not quite that aggressive, but you were buying them for like, a tenth of the workout value of Bitcoin. And of course, Bitcoin's hmm. gone up a bunch. That's awesome. So when Bitcoin was, a th- yeah, yeah, you know, Bill, I really believe that if something, you find something is really asymmetric, even if it has a probability of going to zero, you should probably bet big enough Depends to on the probability. It, well, sh- sure. You want your sure, expected you value to be greater than, you know, whatever your hit rate is, right? So call it two if you have a 50% hit rate. I'm not. Yeah, I I, I agree. Like it, my point would be like because this is where I think you give really fine mispriced bets. Like Russian voucher program is like a good example in my mind of this as well. Which is even if it has a possibility of going to zero, if I'm compensated for it, like wildly compensated, and this is like you know you couldn't math this out. It'd have to be sort of an analytical approach. 
if you think you're really being compensated, you should really try to do it and, and be willing to take a hit on it, you know, willing to take a drawdown. I feel like that's where people sort of miss stuff is they sort of just unwilling to take anything that could not be intellectually defensible or, you know, could be a zero. Yeah. You say, oh, this could be a zero. I'm like, yeah, but. No, I think that's fair. That seems like loss aversion to me in a way. Right, people. People just kind of don't want to accept the risk of a zero. Yeah, people don't want to accept Unless the risk of zero. Well, but yeah, I think I think that's right. I think people don't intellectually. They also don't want to risk zero. You know, I find that when you meet people that are working at hedge funds and stuff, they sort of they want ideas, but they want stuff that's also defensible. So if it doesn't work, they're like, ah, well, I mean, it didn't work, but like I I knew it couldn't work, and this I knew exactly how to map where it wouldn't work. You know, yeah. like this what is it? Uncertainty versus risk paradox where like mm-hmm. they're thinking it's risk. I'm like, no, no, it's uncertainty. I mean, you don't really know what the risk is. It's sort of like you, you don't know what the exit is going to be, but, but it's not all risk. A lot of it is just uncertainty. Like, yeah. You're buying at such a low price that really, you know, you, you, the total loss is what you put. You remember we, we started where you said, if, if you want to de-risk it, just put less money in it. Yeah. <laughs> don't try. Yeah. No, that makes but, sense to me. Anyway. Yeah. I think you just have to make sure that you're being honest about the upside and how asymmetric the bet really can be. I think that's probably where I sort of, if I have a flaw, I think maybe over optimism and underweighting the probability of a zero is probably where I need to be Uh, aware of a blind spot. I can make you money, but I can't make you happy. You don't want to be too much of a curmudgeon because then you'll be unhappy in life. Well, this is, I'm pretty happy. I'm a happy dude. So I'm not sure. Look, so far it's worked out. I say it in the middle of a huge drawdown, or not huge, but uh, big enough that it matters. And I really don't care about the drawdown. So I think that's probably an indication that I'm trending in the right direction. I find that uh, if you're ever feeling really down about your portfolio, either talk to your parents, you know, or someone older, or talk to your kids, you know, depending upon your circumstance. And they'll pretty much let you know that how little it matters about your drawdown. Yeah. Yeah, we don't really care. <laughs> or your great success. Yeah. Or you're, you're, or you're great. You're like, oh, man, this is so great. And they're like, oh, that's really great. And you, you, they kind of give you good perspective. My grandma did that shit to me. I was like so proud of myself last year because I had some like big life moments. And yeah. she was just kind of like, huh, okay. And I was like, well. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, I guess right? I, I got to look inside for that, for that validation. Thanks. Thanks, Nan. No, it's it's good though because it gives you. I think it gives you like good perspective. Sometimes you know when something works out well, you you almost like want to give yourself a ticker take parade, and <laughs> and you know you go, you go and talk with someone who doesn't give a shit about money, and they're looking at you like, oh, that's really great. Yeah, that's right. And then you realize that they're just kind of they're just kind of being nice, and mm-hmm. they're like, and now we're gonna talk about the pie. You know, it's <laughs> like it kind of it, to me. It just it's good. It's it's a good perspective. Yeah, I think, I think. I agree with that. My kids are that way. As are mine. So I think a decent place to wrap, unless you want to continue, but is to say, uh, keep the big things in perspective and value happiness over performance is probably a reasonably good place to uh, leave people. Yeah, yeah, maybe best long-term performance is, sure, you might give up some by being a little optimistic, but it's good for your life and it probably keeps you in the game. You know, you don't want to be so negative when you have drawdowns that you're like, I hate this shit. I'm I'm done. I'm going to index. I'm going home, you know, like, or I'm, 
I'm just going to pack it in because clearly I'm not good at this. So yeah, maybe that is a good place to leave it. I do think too, from an investment perspective, the optimism enables or has enabled me, I shouldn't say enables because it presumes what other people think, but it can allow you to actually visualize and believe in the right tail. And the right tail is where a lot mm-hmm. of returns come from. A lot. Yeah, I so. think so. I think so. All right. I cool, mean, heck, man. I'm I'm all I'm all crypto, so I have to believe in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy for you, and uh, you're a cool guy to get to know. And I appreciate you stopping by the pod. And I hope we can do another sometime. Maybe after these claims pay out, you and I can figure out how to structure your family office. Sounds good. I'll take any advice. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You're, I'll tell you what. It's worth what you're paying for it, which is nothing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, man. Well, we'll talk soon. It's always fun to check. Okay. See you, Bill.